0: grab your bible turn with me to john chapter 17 john chapter 17 I want us to look this morning at the greatest prayer the greatest prayer in the scriptures to remind us of where we are in the journey through John's gospel this is uh, officially the end of the farewell discourse and the time of the crucifixion of Christ is drawing closer and uh, we've looked over the past few months, actually, chapters 13 through 16, at Jesus and his work of preparation with with the disciples, these these guys, these brothers whom he's going to entrust this work of the gospel to. Um, and one thing that, that has to come as a reminder to us in this farewell discourse, that Jesus didn't leave these disciples a plan or a strategy or procedures about what to do next, but he consistently, he constantly reminded them that their trust, their faith, their confidence has to lie in a person, namely him, namely Christ. And so he's promised them that his presence would remain with them through the coming of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't going to leave them alone. Uh, In fact, in ways that they didn't understand at this point, Jesus would actually be with them in a more intimate and direct and constant way as the Holy Spirit was going to come upon the church. And now as we turn from the end of the farewell discourse into chapter 17, we have to remember that the crucifixion, the cross, is drawing closer and closer. Jesus ends his teaching time with his disciples at the end of chapter 16 and then begins praying to the Father and. Chapter 17. The crucifixion is merely hours away. At this point. And Jesus. Spends purposeful time with the father. Praying in. Three particular ways that we'll consider. uh, Only one of for this morning. But in this prayer that we see. All of John chapter 17. We see. We see this prayer. Of God praying to God. And we see a unique demonstration of intimacy in the midst of the Godhead. And so this passage, John 17, is actually the true Lord's Prayer. We typically think of the Lord's Prayer as Matthew chapter 6, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's more along the lines of the disciples' prayer. Jesus is teaching them how to pray. This is the Lord's Prayer where he's actually praying. Or other, other ways that we know this prayer would be something like the high priestly prayer. And so what Jesus does here in chapter 17 is he prays for himself, which we'll consider this morning. Then he prays for his disciples, which we'll consider next week. And then he prays for all that would come after, which would include us, we'll consider in two weeks. And we have this crazy privilege to read this intimate, personal conversation that, that God has with God. And so one of one of my prayers as pastor here is that today as we look at just five verses, just a few words from the mouth of Christ that he's vocalizing to the Father, we're reminded of what we just declared in song, the matchless glory of Christ. So let's read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words here refer to all of the the farewell discourse that he had been walking through with the disciples up to this point. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Before we consider the words of these verses this morning, we have to be mindful of the depth of this event, this moment. This is the Son of God. This is the Word made flesh, John one fourteen. This is the one who is going to die and atoning sufficient death for those who will believe. Fully God, fully man. And... He at this point is praying to the Father, who is fully God. And so by the grace of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get to read these words from the mouth of Christ. That He is praying. And these would be considered kind of the, the last words of a man. And we know as, as death as death becomes more imminent, we pay a little more close attention to the words that are spoken by the one who is about to pass from this life into the next. If, if my death is at hand and I want to speak intentionally to people, I'm going to call people in. Or people are going to come by and visit and we'll speak. And those words in the last moments of one's life carry significant weight. And that, the, these are the words here. These are the words that, that Jesus is praying to the Father. The disciples are able to hear this prayer, this greatest prayer. And so there are some truths that we're reminded of, and then a couple of applications that we draw from this conversation with the Father. The first truth that we're reminded of is that Jesus has all glory. Jesus has all glory. These are his words in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, you, that the Son may glorify you. He refers to to the Father. In fact, throughout throughout this prayer, he refers to God, the Father, this way six times. And we've seen this throughout John. Jesus is constantly saying, I am doing my Father's business. I hear from my Father. I'm sent from my Father. And before we unpack the words, let's just ponder just this first word that Jesus begins with here, Father. And we have to be reminded, because of the work of Christ... We get to say the same thing. (laughs) We get to call the sovereign king of the universe, Father. Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we get to call God Father because of Christ. And Jesus has all glory. And we have to, as we consider that, The phrase here, Father, the hour has come. We're reminded immediately that Jesus lived and died according to God's sovereign plan. Jesus lived and died according to God's sovereign plan. There's perfect unity among the Godhead, among the Trinity, and there's perfect harmony. Jesus knows the hour has come. You remember in earlier sections in John's Gospel, he said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But there's a transition that happened in chapter 12 we looked at several months ago. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Later on in chapter 12, verses 27-28, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me for this, from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, Jesus lived and died according to the sovereign plan of God. The life and death of Jesus were no accident. Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. All things pertaining to his life were scheduled according to the divine plan, and all things pertaining to his death were scheduled according to the divine plan. Even his birth, Galatians reminds us, Paul's words, when Galatians four four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And so when the angels come and make these pronouncements to the players in the birth narrative of Jesus, this happens according to the divine calendar. God isn't just up in heaven flipping coins trying to figure out when this thing is going to begin. But when the fullness of time, when the appointment on the calendar was complete, God sent forth his son. So his birth was. Was according to the divine calendar. Also, his death, Romans 5 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And now Jesus says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. And notice that God's sovereignty over all things, for Christ specifically, comp- actually compels him to pray. And the same should be true for us. God's sovereignty over all things should compel us to pray. This, God's An understanding and an awareness of God's sovereignty over all things should not cause us to fall back from praying. It should actually empower our praying. And so Jesus' request here is glorify me so I can glorify you. And it's the only request of Jesus for himself in this prayer. He's going to pray for the disciples in just a moment, and then he's going to pray for the disciples who are to come a little bit later. But Jesus' only request here is glorify me so that I can glorify you. And this word glory is used five times in these opening five verses. Obviously, the focus of Jesus' attention here. The, the word glorify, carrying the idea, as one scholar put it, to, to clothe with splendor and majesty. And Jesus actually began, if you remember, in chapter 13, Jesus began the farewell discourse with a statement of glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. But it it seems awfully intriguing, right, that Jesus says, glorify your Son that the Son may may glorify you. Why is Jesus asking for glory here? I mean, he, He was and He is God. It seems an odd question, what Jesus is doing here is he's asking for the glory that he laid aside in the incarnation. And so when we read John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, Jesus in that moment took on all the limitations of humanity. Could only be in one place at one time. Became weary. Was emotional. All of these realities that we experienced, Jesus experienced, was tempted by Satan to sin. And when Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you he's he's pointing back to the the glory that he had prior to his incarnation and we know that this glory that's going to come later as, after his ascension his resurrection and ascension paul put it this way have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus and then he he decla- he, he explains some of this glory that is deferred glory that is set aside for his life on earth, who though he was in the form of God, this is Philippians two, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, when Paul says there that he emptied himself, he's not saying that Jesus emptied himself of his deity or he became less God. Jesus doesn't become less God so that he can become man. Rather, what Paul is referring to here and what Jesus is praying in regard to here is that in the incarnation, in God becoming man, the Messiah, Jesus relinquished his right and privileges to deity and set these aside to become a man. He set aside his eternal glory to become a man. And now at this point, he is asking for those rights and privileges to be restored. He's asking for his glory in its fullness to be restored to him. And how does this happen? How how does this how does this happen? How does this actually happen? How does God glorify Jesus? Totally contrary to any way that we would think or imagine. He glorifies the son through the work of the cross. He glorifies the son through the work of the cross, the pathway to glory, the pathway to this prayer being answered for Jesus is the agony of the cross, And Jesus relinquished his grip on eternal glory. He set this glory aside for a season for the sake of the work of the cross. He came as a man, set aside his glory. He came as a man, endured the agony of the cross so that he could die for all those who would believe on him. And so when we think about the cross, and even as we are journeying more quickly now toward the work of the cross in John's gospel, we have to remember that, that the cross is a demonstration of the glory of God. In the cross of Christ, we see the glory of God on display. And so while, yes, it it hurts our heart to ponder what our Savior did for us, we have to be undergirded with this confidence that, no, this is for the glory of God. And this is how you and I get to know the glory of God. If it were not for the cross, we only know the glory of God from a condemnation standpoint we stand rightly condemned because of the glory and the justice and righteousness of God but because of the cross and our repentance and faith in Christ we actually get to know this glory of God and so from a from a human point of view the cross was was a revolting display of just The pinnacle of man's sin. But from God's point of view, the cross revealed and even magnified the grace of God and the glory of God. And so as we ponder the cross and even this prayer that Jesus is praying here, we have to be reminded that he has all glory. He has all glory. And the work of the cross was a demonstration of the glory of God. So number one, Jesus has all glory. Number two, Jesus has all authority. Not only does Jesus have all glory, He has all authority. Verse 2, He says, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus has authority over all people and over all things. He says it this way, post-resurrection, He's about to ascend to the Father, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen: All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Leaving nothing for curiosity. All authority. The words of Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Christ alone has authority over all people and all things. And for us as Christians, this is a gentle but confidence-infusing reminder that nothing is outside the bounds of his authority. Nothing will come our way that will be outside the bounds of the authority of Christ because nothing exists outside the bounds of the authority of Christ. And consider the context here. For these brothers who are hearing this prayer, they're going to think in just a few hours that God has actually lost authority. Right. Because the one to whom they've given their lives to is made a mockery, a spectacle before men and is actually killed, murdered before their eyes. But on the backside of that event, as all things are made new, they realize nothing is outside the bounds of his authority. So Jesus has authority over all people and all things. And then also the second phrase of verse two, Jesus has authority to grant eternal life. Notice he says in verse two to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. The purpose of this authority over all flesh is to give eternal life. Jesus alone has the exclusive right to save sinners. Jesus alone has the exclusive right to save sinners. He put it this way in chapter 6. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me given me so jesus has authority to grant to us eternal life and in verse 2 you see this you see this reciprocal relationship the father gives us to christ and then he gives us eternal life this this phrase just calls me so much pondering and curiosity this week look at the second half of verse 2 to give eternal life to all whom you have given him The Father presents us, those who repent and believe, the Father presents us to Christ. Get the picture. (laughs) Get the picture that Jesus is presenting here. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We are given to Christ and there's in this prayer there's actually a key emphasis on those who are given to Christ. Look down at verse 6. Jesus says, "I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world." Verse 9, "I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me." For they are yours. Verse 11, "Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me." Verse 12, "Which I was while I was with him, I've kept them in your name which you have given me." Toward the end of the prayer, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Brothers and sisters, God in his kindness and providence calls us to himself and gives us to Christ. Gives us to Christ on the basis of the work of Christ, which reminds us, as R.C. Sproul comments, our salvation from start to finish rests on the sovereign decree of God who decided in His grace to have mercy on you, not because of anything He saw in you that demanded it, but before the love of His Son. The only reason I can ever give under heaven why I'm a Christian is because I'm a gift of the Father to the Son, not because of anything I've ever done or could do. And so as the cross was a demonstration of the glory of Christ, it's also a demonstration of the authority of Christ. And so as we consider the 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 event of the cross, the cross didn't happen outside of the authority of Christ. He had all authority, even over his own death. Not a one of us in here has authority over our own death. It is a point, an appointment that God has made for us. Christ alone had authority over his own death. In fact, when he's on trial and giving, if he gives the right answers, he can actually get out of this. But he answers nothing toward Pilate, the Roman authority. Pilate says to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus tells him, you actually, you you really don't have authority over this thing at all. You are only doing what you're supposed to do. You think you have authority, but you are under authority. And so, dear blood-bought child of God, nothing will ever come your way that will be outside the bounds of the infinite authority of Christ. And the cross reminds us that Jesus has all authority. So Jesus has all glory. Secondly, Jesus has all authority. A couple points of application is Jesus turns the corner starting in verse 3. Because of the cross, we can know God. Because of the cross, we can know God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have a pretty serious misconception about eternal life in especially the American church today. The common understanding about eternal life is that we simply make heaven and we miss hell. And so we frame it as, well, don't you want to avoid hell, and don't you want to go to heaven? Well, that's a no-brainer. Like anyone with gray matter in their head is going to say, well, that sounds like a good, that that's, that's like a, a deal that's too good to to turn down, which is typically the pitch that's that's given. And so often we're just asking this wrong question. We present eternal life as the best option among all choices of life, which it is obviously. We don't have eternal life for the sake of having eternal life. We have eternal life, according to the words of Christ here, for the sake of knowing God. The only way to know God is to repent of our sin and to actually believe on Christ. And then we know God, Jesus says, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We get enamored with the concept of heaven And the concept of eternal life. And we get caught up in the beauty and the majesty that that Scripture portrays for us about heaven. And forget the fact that the ultimate beauty and majesty of heaven is Christ. And the only way we have heaven is if we know God. And so when Jesus says here, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, he clearly teaches us that eternal life is not just for the sweet by and by. Eternal life is for the right now. Because we don't just know God when we get to heaven. When we repent and believe, when God calls us to himself and we repent and believe, what happens? We actually know God. And so eternal life happens the moment a man, woman, boy, girl repents and believes on Christ. And so while, yes, we long for heaven to be in the presence of Christ without the weight of this world and the reality of sin in this world and all those things are true, yes. Let's not forget that eternal life has relevance now. In in the here and now. And eternal life is knowing God. We cannot have eternal life without knowing God. And to know God is to be loved by God and to love God. To know God is to submit to God. To know God is to honor God and to glorify God and to obey God. And this word that Jesus uses here in verse 3, know, is not just, it doesn't just communicate knowledge. It doesn't speak just of knowledge that comes from information or from teaching or from logic or from ration. No, no, the, the word communicates two realities of knowing, that we can know God personally and we can know God presently. The word know carries with it the idea of relationship, a knowing that comes through experience. And so we can say that we know some key figure in the world today, but we only know that person through books or websites or news channels. But the word Jesus uses here is that of personal knowledge that comes from experience and comes from intimacy with that person. And so when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, just think about what he's saying. You and I can actually know the one who said, let there be light and there was light. You and I can actually know the one who said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. You and I can actually know the one who said on the cross it is finished and with this he breathed his last. We can know God. We can know him personally, not just not just a source of information, but a reality for us. We know God personally, but also we know God presently. The word know here is in the present tense, and so it carries the idea that we know God now and forever. We know God now and forever, a reality for the present, but it's a reality for ever. We don't just wait for heaven to actually know God. We get to know him now. We know him now. And so knowing God means that we have quality of life now, not just a quantity of life later. This is this is a. 2019 truth for us, not just a. Eternity, truth for us. And so knowing God means we have eternal life. And we understand the teachings of Scripture that this is a one or the other. It's either life or death for us. It's either life or death. And whether we have life is determined by whether we know God. And so have you repented and believed on Christ? Do you know God? And because of the work of the cross, we actually can know God and we can have eternal life. So do you know God? So application one, because of the cross, we can know God. And then in application point two is that Jesus completed his work. Jesus completed his work. Even before the work was complete from a time stamp perspective, Jesus saw his work as complete. Listen to the words of Verses 4 and 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says in verse 4, having accomplished the work. The word accomplished there is the same word that's used in chapter 19 and verse 30. Flip over to chapter 19 and verse 30. It's a really brief sentence, but it's. Significant enough for us to turn there. Jesus is on the cross. Last moments, literally last moments of his life. Verse 30, when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word finished there is the same word that's translated back in chapter 17, verse 4, accomplished Jesus sees this work as accomplished. And so what is this work? Interpreting scripture with scripture, we understand that this work is not just the healings and the miracles and the teachings in his earthly life. But this work has a has a bigger reality. And this work is the actual work of the cross. Jesus was resolute on his work of atonement. He there was nothing that was going to deter him from accomplishing the work of the cross, so much so that before it even happened, he said, my work is complete. And so Jesus completed the work of the atonement in the event of the cross so that the Father could give us back to the Son, verse 2. And so Jesus completed the work of God, but also Jesus returned to His pre-incarnate glory, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I have with You before the world existed. And so when when Christ becomes flesh, when the Word becomes flesh, chapter 1 and verse 14, we know that that this condition is not designed to just be a temporary condition. In fact, if you consider the, the events transpiring after the crucifixion of Christ, He comes out of the grave. There's this miraculous event, the resurrection, and He appears in bodily form. So much so that to some of the disciples that are doubting, He says to them, hey, put your hands here and touch. And He breaks bread before them and they realize that they are with Christ. And He he still has the, the reality of the Word made flesh. What is different though is He rises with this transformed, glorified body which is able to return to the Father. And therefore the glory of the Son is returned to Him at this ascension. And so the only way, the only way... For us to know this glorious Christ is for God to reveal himself to us. We don't come to Christ by reason. We come to Christ by revelation. We don't come to Christ because we think it's a good idea. We come to Christ because God has shown us that we are dead in sin. And Christ has accomplished everything necessary for us to be forgiven of that sin. And our heart cries out like the crowd in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what must we do? We become aware of this glory of Christ and His beauty and His holiness and His grace. We become also aware of our sin and our depravity and we call out to God to forgive us of that sin and to save our soul. And then we have the promise of Scripture. We know God. We actually know God. And you remember the the passage from Philippians we, we read earlier. That section ended with Humility turned into glory. And this is the Christ that we love and that we worship. And He is the one who has all glory. And as the Son of God, He is altogether different from us, yet He became one of us. He became a man. Came into the world, born of a virgin, became a man For the sole purpose of glorifying God by securing our redemption and suffering the agony of the cross and ultimately dying the death that you and I deserve. In His great grace and kindness, He grants us the privilege of repenting and believing on Him. And we can actually know God. And to be clear, God would be absolutely justified and not extending His grace and kindness to the first person on the planet. But He is glorified as He extends His grace to us and gives us this crazy, mind-blowing privilege of actually knowing Him. Knowing Him not just because we read about Him in a book. But knowing him, because he takes a dead heart and makes it alive. He takes a heart of stone out of our soul and replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And we know him because he fills us with his spirit. Upon conversion, the the work of Christ being applied to us and the Holy Spirit takes residence within our lives. And we know God. When we think of the work of the cross, we have to remember that work was necessary for us to know God. And yeah, you better believe it. We get goodness and grace for all of eternity. But let's not forget, church, that we get goodness and grace now. Right now. Today, and Christ has all glory and Christ has all authority. One reminder of his grace is that there's nothing that will ever come your way or my way that will be outside the boundary of his authority because that boundary does not exist. And we can know God. And we often think, man, these guys. These guys had, had a little bit of an advantage on us because they actually got to see Jesus. They were like witnessing this prayer. And we read about it and it's translated through languages and things. And But this is what Peter, who would have been one of the ones who likely would have heard this prayer here. He wrote this to a group of folks who didn't have the privilege of firsthand seeing Christ. First Peter, chapter one, verse eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that true for you? You've not seen Jesus, but you love Him. And if there's a, well, I'm not sure, it's a pretty clear indication that you actually don't. Because to know Him is to love Him. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You've not seen him, but you love him. You've not seen him, but you believe in him. And what's the result? You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. like Words can't put description to the joy that is in the heart of the Christian. Every word we try to communicate falls dreadfully short. We rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can this joy be filled with glory? It's because we know God. And how do we know God? Because God in His kindness sent Christ to die for our sin. And in Christ dying for our sin, we have the privilege to actually know God. Do you know God? The words of Christ to the Father here compel us to ask the question, do I actually know God? And if you don't, well, then the teaching of Scripture and the the way Scripture compels us is to repent and believe. Ask God to save your soul. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin and save your soul. And if God is drawing you to Himself, you will be made new. And you will know God and brother sister Christian those who profess to know God are you knowing God is the fact that you've been made new in Christ a realization for moment by moment day by day are you constantly knowing God. Not just that you were saved when you were 14 or you were saved when you were 28 or you were saved when you were 7, but actually growing in your knowing God. Well, how do we do that? We grow in our Christ likeness. We become more like the one who died the death that we deserved. We repent of sin and we pursue righteousness. And as we know God, we come to know ourselves a lot more clearly. As we grow in our walk with Christ, we realize just how depraved we really are. And as we grow in our walk with Christ, we we realize just how deep His grace really is. And so may we all grow in knowing God. As we've walked through the point in John's Gospel up to this moment, we have to be reminded that Christ has all glory. And far be it from us that our vision and our understanding and our awareness of Christ actually be smaller than what it truly is. Let's pray. Father, Lord, it's only by your grace that we can know you. Lord, we hear these words of, of Christ that he has authority over all flesh and he gives eternal life to those you give to him. Lord, for those of us who are saved, thank you for drawing us. We're reminded of those words from from John six forty four that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. So thank you for drawing us, Lord, for showering our lives with with your kindness. And Lord, we we as the church we confess that, Lord, we're pretty quick to lose sight of the glory of God. We're lose quick to lose sight of the the work of the cross, the depth of our sin. but lord in your in your kindness. lord, you remind us of truths like this one from verse 3 that eternal life means knowing you the only true god and Christ whom you've sent. and father, if there's if there in fact is someone or some folks here today who actually don't know you, maybe have been Uh, playing a good religious game for their whole life up to this point or maybe know nothing of religion. And this whole news is totally new to them. Lord, we trust that you can save them and so we ask that you will. Lord, grant grant them the privilege to repent and believe. Draw them to yourself and help them to see the depth of their sin, the beauty of the sufficiency of Christ. And Lord, even as we Turn our attention toward the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that this is a demonstration of the glory of Christ. Father, we know you. And our hearts cry that we want to know you. And thank you, Lord, that this truly is uh, a, a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We love you, Father. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.